If you're visiting with us today, what we typically do during the sermon is we go expositionally through the Bible. So we take a book of the Bible, and then we go one verse at a time. And that's what you will find us doing every Sunday here, except on very rare exceptions. And today is one of those rare exceptions. We have a few of them throughout the year. But as Pastor Greg mentioned earlier, one of them for the last, well, the 10 years that we've been in existence as a church has been to take a break from whatever sermon series we're on, on the Sanctity of Human Life Day. And I deliver something different. So that's what I'm doing today. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Day. That is the term Ronald Reagan gave it in 1984. It coincides with the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of 1973 in Roe v. Wade, the decision that it made on abortion. So in light of that, we are taking a one Sunday break from our study of 1 Corinthians. And today we'll be looking at, as you know, Psalm 106. Before I pray, I want all of you to know that in preparing a sermon like this, I have tried my best to consider everyone who might be present today. Uh, All seasons and stages of life and struggle are represented here this morning. I know that. I know some of you have had abortions. I know some of you have been complicit in abortion. I know some of you need to experience conviction this morning. I know that others need to experience forgiveness this morning. I know that some of you are activists, and I hope that you'll be encouraged today. And sadly, I know that others of you might be indifferent to this, and I pray you'll be awakened today, awakened to the reality of the horror of abortion The horror that is now 46 years of regulated child sacrifice in this country. As well, I know we have children here with us. My kids are here. I don't want parents not to hear this sermon because you're on pins and needles worried about the content to come. I'll I'll speak frankly and accurately, but also carefully and with discretion. I think it's important, though, for our children to not be sheltered from this issue of national sin. Now, before I preach this sermon, we need to pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with desire and push our wills to trust you, to honor you, to obey you, convict us, forgive us, and motivate us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Psalm 106. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you'll find that on page 324. The goal of Psalm 106 is to call the reader to worship. That's the goal. 
As you read this psalm, the goal is that you would be called to worship. So look at the bookends of this psalm with me. The, the first two verses and then the last verse. Verses 1 and 2 say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? That's at the front end. And then at the back end, look at verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. The psalm, you see, begins and ends with give thanks to the Lord and praise the Lord. And so everything in between those bookends is meant to be reason to worship Him, reason to praise Him, reason to thank Him. Give thanks to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. Everything in between, this is why you should thank Him and praise Him. In other words, if they, whom this was written to and to us reading today, if they read this and if you read this, your heart should be moved to praise God. Your heart should be moved to worship God. So let's begin working our way through the psalm. The first six words of verse 1 read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And why? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Two reasons are given in this verse. For He is good. That's the first one. And for His steadfast love endures forever. For He is good. God is good. 1 John 1.5 There is no darkness in God. There is darkness everywhere else. There is no darkness, not a hint, not a splinter of darkness in God. Deuteronomy 32.4 says His work is perfect. All His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. God is good. And the psalmist writes, His steadfast love endures forever. God's love is steadfast. That means unconditional. And it endures forever. God's love for His children is not conditional. And it is not short-lived. It is a no-matter-what love. It is an eternal love. And therefore, we should give thanks to the Lord. That is the psalm's introduction. And now, the verses that follow, all the way through verse 46, they paint a picture of this enduring, steadfast love of God. He's going to paint a picture of that. We're not going to read every verse, but let me briefly explain to you how the psalmist paints this picture. Obviously, one way to show us the 
unending love of God would be to give example after example of God's love. The author could do that, but that's not what he does here. Rather, to show us, to give us a picture of the enduring, steadfast love of God, he's going to do two things. Two things to drive home the magnitude of God's love. First, he's going to recount the historical wickedness of Israel. That's the first thing he does in this psalm. He recounts the historical wickedness of Israel. And then second, he's going to recount the historical mercy of God. In other words, here's what he's saying. Israel, you have not been lovable. You have rebelled against God, the psalmist is saying. You have done nothing to deserve or inspire the affection and love of God, and yet He has loved you. And so as you read these verses, you see the mercy of God. And actually, the pattern of rebellion and rescue that we see here is evident throughout the entire Old Testament. This cycle of the people's rebellion and God's redemption is over and over and over again. That is the cycle of life among Israel in the Old Testament. It went like this. Israel would disobey God. God would then discipline Israel. Israel would then become desperate and cry out to God. God would then deliver Israel. Israel would then dedicate themselves afresh to God, but it would be short-lived. And then they would be back to disobeying God. And that's the pattern over and over again in the Old Testament. Disobedience, discipline, desperation, deliverance, dedication, and then back to disobedience. Some of you have seen that same pattern in your own life. I've seen this pattern in my life. It's the pattern of Israel in the Old Testament. Let me show you that pattern here in Psalm 6. So look at verse 7b. So the second part of verse 7 says, They... That is, our fathers, he's talking about our fathers and grandparents. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So there's the disobedience, right? And now look at verse 8. Here's the deliverance. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. That's the deliverance. And that deliverance would typically result in some sort of rededication. Some of you have been in church for a long time. You're familiar with that phrase. It's not a biblical phrase, but when you were young, if you were in church, you were probably encouraged every summer at some camp to do what? To rededicate your life, like to re-up your commitment to God. So God would deliver his people, 
and then they would rededicate themselves to him. Verse 12, then they believed, he had just delivered them, then they believed his words, they sang his praise. But it would never last long. And soon they'd be back to disobedience and the cycle would start all over again. The very next verse, 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And so this cycle of rebellion and rescue is the theme of this psalm. And in fact, it is the theme of the entire Old Testament. And the psalmist is bringing it up here to say, see how faithful and enduring God's love is. See, he's saying to Israel, Look at your rebellion over and over and over again. And yet God has not washed His hands of you. He has not destroyed you. He's delivered you over and over again. So see is the point how faithful and enduring His love is and that should incite worship. And so the writer says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Now I said we weren't going to read all of this. But I just want to highlight some verses for you. Remember two things are being done here to paint a picture of God's love. He's recounting the historical wickedness of Israel. And he is recounting the historical mercy of God. So listen to just a few of these. Listen to these phrases that are recounting God's historical mercy. Verse 8, they rebelled, yet He saved them for His name's sake. Verse 10, He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Verse 23, He relented from destroying them, that is, at Moses' prayer. And verse 30 God responded in mercy to Phineas's zeal for the Lord. So he recounts the historical mercy of God. And he does this against the backdrop of the historical wickedness and rebellion of Israel. The point he's making is you have been so bad. But God has been so good. That's the point. That's why he recounts both sides of that coin. You have been so bad, but God has been so good. You have been so bad, and God knows how bad you've been, and he loves you. And he's still here. His love is faithful. His love is enduring forever. So beginning in verse 6 then, he recounts the wickedness of Israel. First by giving a general statement, a general confession, where he says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And then he goes through the psalm and he just gets more specific. 
He names their sin. Let me list just some of them. And there's a bunch. Verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your love, but rebelled by the sea. Verse 14. They had a wanton craven, craving in the wilderness and put you to the test in the desert. Verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. Verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior. Verse 24, they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in His promise. Verse 25, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Verse 28, they yoked themselves to the Baal of pure and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. Verse 35, they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. So he is recounting Israel's historical wickedness. And he does this all the way to verse 36. And that's where it culminates. This is the climax of his recounting of their wickedness. So listen to verses 36 through 39. If you have your Bible, these would be verses to read with me. We're going to consider over the next few minutes how this depth of wickedness that we'll read here might compare to our own national wickedness today. Verse 36. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. There is the depth or the height, if you will, of Israel's wickedness. That's how bad it got in Israel to the point where they were killing. They were sacrificing their sons and daughters. Verse 38. This is very descriptive language. This is written in a very raw form. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. He repeats the identity of those killed, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. These are those kinds of verses where if you're looking to sort of sanitize your Bible, you just don't read. There would be much easier ways of saying this. There would be much less descriptive ways of saying this. But this is written this way for a reason. Now this, of course, is not an exhaustive list of the sins of Israel in Psalm 106, but... The psalmist does stop his list here with they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They killed 
That's what was happening. They were killing their own children. Can a people sink any lower than that? How many conscience roadblocks have to be plowed through to reach that point? Where that's common and acceptable in a culture. This is morally speaking. This is rock bottom. It's as if the author is answering the question, how far down did these people spiral? And his answer is, all the way. All the way. We're told they had idols. In verse 36 and in verse 38, we're told they had idols. In other words, there were things that they loved more than God. A simple definition of an idol. There were things that they loved more than God. And in service to these idols, they sacrificed their children. To sacrifice is to give up something important for something that you deem more important. And so, in service to their idols, things that they loved more than God, they plummeted to a point where they were willing to give up something important to sacrifice their children for other things that they seemed more important. So I would submit confidently that through abortion, people are being sacrificed today. That through abortion, children are being sacrificed today. We are sacrificing our children in service to our idols. Idols like comfort and convenience and reproductive freedom and personal desires. thought I'd talk for just a minute, as I always try to educate us as a church on this day and awaken us to some things. You probably know this. Planned Parenthood is by far the largest abortion provider in this country. They commit over 30% of this nation's abortions. By contrast, when it comes to services they provide, in 2015 they provided 0.97 of 1% of the nation's pap tests and 1.8% of all breast exams, but over 30% of all abortions. They've tried to brand themselves as a women's health provider. In the past, they've said very misleading things. I'm sure you've heard it, like abortion only accounts for 3% of our services, but recently... As the truth has come out, they've been more open about what they do. In fact, Lena Wen, the new president of Planned Parenthood, said this just 12 days ago. The president of Planned Parenthood said this on January 8th. Our core mission is providing 
protecting and expanding access to abortion. We will never back down from that fight. It is a fundamental human right and women's lives are at stake. And by women's lives, she means some women's, because I know she doesn't speak for all the women here today, at least. When she says women's lives are at stake, what she really means is some women's preferences. But we live in a country whose Supreme Court decreed on January 22, 1973, that the taking of unborn human life is constitutionally protected up until the moment of birth. And so since 1973, in America alone, we've killed over 50 million children. It's a hard number to imagine. I don't even, I don't know what 50 million of anything looks like. One would be a travesty. Two, three, four. But somehow, we've managed to take the lives of 50 million babies. There's a few more verses for us to read. Verse 40 describes, and we're not surprised by this, God's outrage over how far his people had fallen. So this is immediately following that account of how far down they had gone in sacrificing their children. And the very next verse says, verse 40, Then, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He hated his people. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Now we too today are under the discipline and judgment of God. Right now, today, we are under the judgment of God. He has handed us over to this sin. He's handed us over. The judgment that we are incurring, among other things, is that there are over 50 million missing people right now. That we could love and be loved by. that we could serve and, and enjoy, have our lives made better, our nation made better, and they're gone. Because God has allowed us to take their lives. I'm sure more judgment is coming. As we know and understand who God is and how He has historically dealt with His people, We cry out for His grace and cry out for His mercy. But I don't see how more judgment isn't coming unless we nationally repent and criminalize abortion. That brings us to verse 45. 
which brings us back to the theme of this psalm. You may have forgotten. The theme of this psalm is what? Praise. The theme is praise. The theme is the steadfast love of God. They had sinned terribly, and yet God continued to love them. That is the main point of the psalm. They had sinned terribly, but God continued to love them. The main point of the psalm is not, they sinned terribly. Listen, you have sinned terribly, and yet God continues to love you. That is the main point of the Bible. And that is the main message of the gospel. When you heard the gospel or when you preached the gospel, I hope you helped people understand and I hope someone helped you understand that you are a great sinner. But the main point of the gospel is not that you are a great sinner. The main point is that He is a great Savior. That is the main point of this psalm. That is the main point of the Old Testament. That is the main point of the New Testament. That is the main point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, that we have sinned terribly and God has loved us steadfastly and promises to love us eternally. Verse 43. Many times He delivered them but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. And here's a beautiful word. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, or no matter what they did, no matter what they said, no matter what you thought, no matter what you did, no matter what you said, Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. And for their sake, out of love for them, for their sake, he remembered his covenant. It's God saying, ah, I've made a promise to this people. Committed myself to these people. To love them no matter what. He remembered his covenant and relented. Relented. According to, and look what we're back to. The abundance of his steadfast love. That's the word of God in Psalm 106. He calls them to praise. He calls us to praise calls them to gratitude. He calls us to gratitude. Very hard and harsh, descriptive language. They had sinned terribly. It is good for us to remember and to know that we have sinned terribly. And yet, God's love is steadfast. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is rescue in Christ. There is deliverance in Christ. Christ. There is being washed clean of all we've done and all we ever will do in Christ and in Christ alone. And so the despair that you may feel over your sin that I would say is appropriate at times. 
but that despair that you and I feel over our sin by the gospel is turned into gladness. Turned into even more joy than if we didn't understand the depth of our sin. But because I know what a great sinner I am, the love of God for me is magnified. There's just no way he loves me because of something good in me. There's just no way he loves me because of something great in me. There's just no way that he loves me because of some good deed or good work or good deeds or good works that I have done. He loves me because he loves me. He loves me because he is love. He loves me because he is a loving God. I think there's many different ways to apply a text like this and a sermon like this. I'm going to just offer one application. And the psalmist himself applies the psalm this way in verses 47 and 48, which we'll look at in just a minute. And what does he do in those two verses? He prays. He prays at the conclusion of his psalm. And so in light of our own wickedness and in light of God's steadfast love, we also should pray. So in conclusion, let me offer five ways that you can pray in light of this text and in light of this sermon. Five ways that you can pray. Number one, the first is to pray for the salvation of our nation. Uh, John, I don't know if you can hear it up there, but there's a buzzing uh, back here. Let me know if there's something I need to do differently. Number one, the first is to pray for the salvation of our nation. The buzz is gone. Did you, you didn't do anything? All right, there you go. Must have been me. The first is to pray for the salvation of our nation. And that's actually the prayer. That's actually the prayer at the conclusion of the psalm. Verse 47 and 48. Save us. Us, not me. Here he is on behalf of his nation. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So the first way that Christians can pray and should pray is for the salvation of our nation. Save us, God. Save us from our sin. Save us from Satan. Save us from ourselves. Save us from you, God, because we are an unjust people and you are a just God. And we are facing your wrath. So save us, God. Awaken us to the reality of this sin, to the reality of other sins. Awaken us to our separation from you. Awaken us to the truth of the gospel. Open more eyes. Open more ears. Use us to preach your word that more would be saved. Rescue us, God. Number two, secondly, pray for those who have had an abortion 
or who have been complicit in an abortion. Maybe that's you. Maybe it isn't you. Pray for those who have. If they have not confessed, it is sin and sought forgiveness. Pray that they would see it as sin and seek forgiveness. Pray that if they have confessed and they have received forgiveness, that they would experience forgiveness. That they would experience help and hope and healing. This psalm should be a source of encouragement to those of you who have committed abortion. You should be encouraged by the words in this psalm. There is forgiveness and hope and healing and help in Christ and through His church. Issues like this don't have to be ignored. They don't have to be swept under the carpet. They don't have to be redefined. They don't have to be pretended they're something other than they're not. They can be confessed and they can be forgiven just as any other sin. That's good news in this psalm. Number three, thank God for those who are taking action. Some of us, I fear, are here today and we're relatively indifferent to this sin of abortion. Some of us are attitudinally engaged. So our, our mind is with this, our heart is with this, but beyond that, we're not very active, we're not taking much action. But there are many today who are, and we should thank God for those in this country who are doing something. The psalmist did that in verse 3, didn't he? He said, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. So we should thank God for observers of justice. We should thank God for doers of righteousness. We should thank God for people who are taking action. We should thank God for the many organizations that they are, the many coalitions that there are. Number four. And this prayer would be directed toward yourself, myself. Pray that God would embolden you to take action in some way. There's so many different ways that could happen. But at some point we go from being indifferent to being shaken and awakened to the horror of this reality. And many of us at that point where we go from being indifferent to engaged, we end up on a sideline. On a sideline watching those we just prayed for in number three take action. Well, pray that God would embolden you. You. And I'd insert every single one of your names if I could right now. 
Pray that God would embolden you to take action in some way or to take action in some way that you're not taking action right now. Get online, look at organizations like Live Action or Americans United for Life or Abort 73 or the Center for Bioethical Reform. There's many, many more, many more than there were just five, ten, certainly 30 years ago. There's many ways. Help in an after-abortion or reproductive loss recovery program. As Pastor Greg announced, we're developing one here. See me or Greg or Pastor Jeff if you're interested in finding out more about being trained up to help. Go and visit the Sacramento Memorial Garden if you haven't already. Go and visit the garden. It's a memorial garden. Again, I know I'm repeating what you said, Greg. It's devoted to honoring and memorializing the lives of aborted, miscarried, stillborn children. It's intended to be a place of reflection, of help and hope and healing as well. It's a site for memorial services. We would encourage you to visit the garden. You can pick up a brochure here before you leave. Serve or support pro-life ministries like Sierra Pregnancy and Health. Tricia Lewis, who's the executive director, is a member here. We have a table set up in the lobby. You can look for them online. But they're here in Placer County to love and serve mothers who are faced with unexpected or unplanned or unwanted pregnancies. So serve, support, help one of these organizations. Or consider adoption, the opposite of abortion. I do believe that as adoption becomes a, a, a more normal part of family planning in this country, abortion will decrease. So consider adoption. A woman may find herself, many do, in an unplanned pregnancy, but as adoption increases, may she know that her child fits perfectly into the plan of a couple who loves Jesus and loves children. Some simply don't want a child right now. In fact, statistically, reasons given Far over 90% it is, I don't want a baby right now. Join us in declaring that there is just no such thing as an unwanted child. Christians should say, that doesn't exist. Every child is wanted. Planned Parenthood commits... I said this before, roughly 30% of our nation's abortions, to put that in numbers, in 2016, they performed over 320,000 abortion, which works out to an abortion every minute and a half. I don't know how long I've been preaching, but 
Every 90 seconds of this sermon, Planned Parenthood has committed another abortion. So here's the number. In 2016, 320,000 abortions. In that same year, they gave out 2,889 adoption referrals. 320,000 to 2,889. And so Lila Rose, president of Live Action, she accurately points out, if a woman with an unwanted pregnancy goes to Planned Parenthood, that child is 160 times more likely to be poisoned or dismembered than to be put up for adoption to a waiting family. So consider adoption. Five, fifth way that we can pray. And finally, praise the Lord is the fifth way we can pray. That may sound odd, but don't forget the theme of this psalm. Don't let it become lost. We ought to be a people who relentlessly praise God, who relentlessly thank God. As faithful as He is to loving and providing for us, we should be faithful in praising and worshiping Him. And we praise God because of His steadfast love which endures forever. The gospel means that there is forgiveness extended to every single one of us. The gospel means that our hope is not in a nation. I love this nation. I really do. Got a big flag on a big pole in front of my house. Got an American flag sticker on the back of my car. My dad served faithfully in World War II and in Korea. I have the utmost respect for men and women that have given their lives or time or energy to defend this great country. I love this nation. But my hope is not in this nation. My hope is in God. Who is over all nations. And so we're reminded even in this psalm, aren't we? Here is this horrible nation. And their wickedness is being recounted by the author. And yet here is this God who loves them. No matter what. Who keeps every one of his promises. So we don't look to the nation. We look to God. And the primary way we relate to God. Is in praise. And worship. Because his steadfast love. Endures forever. Every Sunday following every sermon, one of the ways we respond is by taking communion together. We do this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in remembrance of what he accomplished for us on the cross through his substitutionary atoning death. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 and following, the apostle Paul writes for I received the Lord 
what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are here this morning at this culmination, really, of our service now, remembering and proclaiming the sacrificial death of Jesus in a very real and very visible way. If you're visiting here today, you are invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, and if you are a part of a local church, whether it's this or another church, that faithfully preaches the gospel. We'll have leaders up front who will serve you this morning. We ask that you would empty into the center aisle and come forward. Take the bread and juice. Return to your seat from the outer aisle. And then wait. And we'll take the bread and the juice together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, will you use your word to shape us and to form us and to, to make us more like you. God, regardless of where each of us are, are individually, we know that nationally, in so many ways, especially what we've talked about today, we are not even close to reflecting your holiness. So God, we ask that you would rescue us, that you would save us from our sin. Lord, I ask that you would use those who are already so involved to change this nation. God, I pray for young people who are here this morning. I pray, God, that you would embolden them to think about how they might spend their life for this cause. We ask that you would raise up lawyers from among our young people, that you would raise up legislators, that you would raise up representatives and politicians, that you would raise up organization founders, that you would raise up community and coalition leaders. We ask, God, that through the reality of this sin and the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit that, that you would call young people even now to devote their lives to this cause because we need more of this, God. And we've seen how you have changed a people over and over again. And it starts with a person. So God, we ask that you would use your people for the good of this entire nation and for your glory. Bless us now, we pray, as we remember and proclaim the death of your Son. Upon all these things are even possible. We give you praise, glory, honor, and in the name of Jesus, amen.